Hi everyone, welcome to Third Space in the podcast where we explore important issues on the fringes of clinical medicine. I'm your host, Anne Hui. Today I'm joined by Associate Professor Lao Tangcheng, a familiar face to many of us in NUS Medicine. He is the Vice Dean of Education at the Yonglulin School of Medicine NUS and a Senior Consultant in Rheumatology at NUH. In this podcast episode, we talk about how do we be successful in medical school, what the future of medical education looks like, and why we shouldn't drink wine alone. Hi, Prof Lau. Thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe let's start from the very beginning. When and why do you want to be a doctor? I started choosing medicine because I felt that it is one of those callings where you really can help people and whatever you learned will be applied straight away and of course later on I realized also that it's a very privileged calling where you actually have the chance to impact lives not only solving problems but there's medical but also impact lives in different dimensions and as I go along the way I start to realize that not only it is a calling where you can help one patient at a time but with the necessary training, you actually can start to help the healthcare system as a whole. Because not only the patient is sick uh, in many of our local contexts, and many patients require help, but the healthcare system also need a lot of improvements. And so along the way, I start to become more interested in quality improvement, in um, maybe epidemiology and looking at studies on health service research. And later on, uh, looking at education as enablers to change the healthcare system and also to um, help people learn about how to make themselves better doctors and also to improve the healthcare system along the way through education. So that, in a nutshell, is how I continue to go through different cycles of learning to continue to then contribute in different areas in medicine. I think it's really great that you shared with us like this kind of like circuitous route into into education because mm. I don't think anyone goes to the medical school thinking I want to be the vice dean no. of education. How how do you end up in this role then? Yeah, I think along the way I realized the the three things that one a person need to consider eventually whether you realize this um, when you are twenty years old or even thirty years old or even forty years old it's never too late. The first is you must know your sweet spot. What are you good at doing effortlessly and you enjoy doing very much? Secondly, you must find a calling, something that you want to make a difference to the community or to society by the end of your lifetime. That means what you want to leave behind, either as an impact or as a legacy that make a difference to the community. And the third is how to then continue to nurture yourself with the skill sets and also grow the network of friends and colleagues to work together towards this calling by building relationships. So to put it simply is know your sweet spot, know your calling and build relationships. I think currently in in medical school, I think it can be quite difficult to do all these three things. Mm. I mean, either one of them or all three at once at the same time. And I was just wondering, what are like some practical things you can yeah. do as a med student then? Right. I think I'm, you may remember um, in your first lecture or at least one of the lectures that I've given to the year one and two class, I asked you all the question, what, what do you value most in life? And secondly, what do you find satisfaction in uh, consistently? That means you don't get jaded even if you do it all the time. Mm. And 
along the way, most people will start to realize that relationships will be what you value most in your life because at the end of your life, you really want um, your close ones to be near you. And also, as you grow a bit older, you realize that there's nothing more valuable than having friends and family and loved ones doing things together with them. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's delicious food or mm-hmm. a good bottle of wine, if you drink alone versus you share it with your loved ones, the experience is totally different, right? So if you can have the relationship to work on something together, you'll be great. Of course, then the next thing is what will not become um, jaded even if you do it con- consistently. Um, because there's a, this theory of a heuristic treadmill, that means human beings tend to be chasing after things and after you've gotten it, you need to get something even more to get the same satisfaction. But that tends to be on material stuff. But when you are looking at the less material, for example, uh, impacting lives, helping people, making things better, whether it's the patient or the healthcare system, or even trying to help with global warming or inequality of um, opportunities in society, any of these things, you realize that there's no end to the satisfaction because after you have accomplished one area, you know that you can work on another area. And because of your accomplishment in the earlier area, you now can do a little bit more, maybe involving more friends and more help and getting more support to do a bigger thing. So there's constant satisfaction in, in pursuing that calling. And that's why I always thought that if you have a sweet spot that allows you to fulfill a calling with your friends and loved ones, your life will be a lot more satisfying and meaningful than if you didn't have this. Mm-hmm. And that's why I often want to remind our students not to just pursue the titles and the um, pro- residency programs on that just because it's going to give them wealth or prestige. But really know your sweet spot first. And then do something that has meaning beyond just the uh, material. Um, and of course, never give up on friends along the way. So as a student, I think friendship is something that you will always uh, find. And that's why we encourage the students not to have competition, but to really work together, to do well together in the whole cohort. And we do away with grades in year one and two, hoping to cultivate that. And hopefully even in year three to five, although there are grades, by then you have appreciated that working together is far more satisfying than to compete with one another. So if you have that relationship, then the next step is how can you find your calling? And that's the part which I think may not come immediately. But along the way, you'll start to discover because with your sweet spot, you will realize that when you do something in medicine or related, you tend to do better. And that. So as a medical student, um, what you can actually uh, really build on now is relationships because really the friends that you have in the five years of medical school is really precious. Um, the fact that you have gone through rack and frack together and um, go through the preparation of studies um, and exams will really um, give you the bonding that is precious. But what then eventually may be important is for you to also find a calling. It may not come immediately. Sometimes it's only when you are 30 years old or beyond that you really know what it is. But if you can find a calling based on your sweet spot, I think it will be a lot easier. And one of the things that I also um, reminded my students is actually you don't have to live your life fully planned throughout um, the entire 80 years. You can actually live life in aliquots of seven to eight years. So for the first two years of that seven years, you learn something new and become good at it. And then for the next four to five years, you try to put that new knowledge into practice, 
by solving a new problem, integrating that new knowledge with your old knowledge because you then can come up with a new solution. And then after that, you try to pass on whatever you're doing to another person in the last one year so that you're free again to continue another eight-year cycle. And so if you think about it, we have at least um, five to six eight-year cycles in our life where we can be actively contributing. So up to 24 years old, the first three eight years, you'll be becoming a doctor. Um, but after that, you realize that every two years, you can learn something new. It can be a master's or a PhD, but it can be just knowledge that you can acquire on your own. And then you try to apply this new knowledge into a problem that cannot be solved before. And who knows, with a team of friends and colleagues, and with this new knowledge, you can start to work on a project to solve a new problem. And then every time you have chance to learn something new again, you should continue to build on it. So for me as an example, in my first um, eight years, I tried, trained to become a rheumatologist. When I about 30, 32, I become a rheumatologist officially. Then I started another eight-year cycle looking at quality, um, no, clinical epidemiology and research in health services. So in my third eight years, I started to look at quality improvement because I realized that just doing health service research is still not good enough. I need to look at root cause analysis and um, other ways of intervening. And beyond that, I start to realize that education is another skill set that will be helpful because you need to educate people on quality improvement, on clinical epidemiology, and other kind of research methodology. And then um, in more recent years, I'm trying to see how I can apply um, other knowledge like uh, data science, um, and maybe other way of um, looking at problems through the humanities, humanities eye. And that's why I'm becoming interested in these two areas in recent years. That was a really good illustration of how one can lead their lives um, in cycles. And I completely agree with you, there can be that constant anxiety of if I'm doing enough. Yes. I found it so interesting that you mentioned technology and medical humanities in the same breath, because yeah. you often think of these as two opposing ideas. I think the medical humanities is still relatively new in Singapore. So uh, maybe could you explain to our listeners what that is to you or what that is in the future in Yonglin? Mm. To me, the art or the humanities is a way for the creator of that art to create resonance within the people who are enjoying the art form. And it allows the person to see within himself or herself and also see the surrounding with a new eye. And with that kind of resonance and sometimes the dissonance, the mind starts to have the willingness to start to look at things afresh and anew. And I think the ability to see with an open heart and open mind is always important to grow our mindset. And therefore, humanities is one good way to allow us to see that and create that dissonance or resonance to have the opportunity to grow. Um, and therefore, I think humanities is something that the school will try to explore. And we are glad that some of the students are very keen on doing so. The students, when they're exposed to, to the relevant humanities um, opportunities, can start to think of how it will be relevant for themselves as a doctor to be, and also how they can help other students to enjoy humanities but at the same time cultivate the human qualities that are so important so i'm very supportive of any student-led activities even the a podcast like this is something uh, helpful and we will continue to look at how we can embed humanities in some of our mentoring efforts 
as you know, in year one this year, they will have a new program called Enrich. So in the houses, they will actually have tutors who are trained to then mentor groups of maybe five to ten students with two mentors to then look at um, how they can cultivate the values um, and also learn experientially through community services and through that um, have reflection on their own growing as a healthcare professional. Along the way, we'll also try to embed um, art form like drawings and literature appreciation into the sessions so that we can use uh, art and other humanities approaches to cultivate awareness of their own character and build insights into their own lives. And it's only when you know who you really are and then you can start to see how you can change for the better. What I'm also hearing is it's important for students to cultivate another skill set apart from their clinical skills. And apart from Enrich, um, which helps to have value-led education and reflection, I was wondering what are certain programs that the school might be coming up, maybe like... Sure. So one of the things we have realised uh, over the years is clinical medicine only solves 10% of healthcare problems. The other 20% or thereabout is genetically embedded, so you really can't change that. But 60 to 70% of healthcare problems are related to social determinants of health. So the hope is that in future, our students should not only be aware of the clinical approach to healthcare problems, but they should be well aware of the social aspects of a person's life and also work with a team of health professionals to help the patient and the family be well as a whole, you know, that means not only well physically, but also well emotionally, spiritually, vocationally, intellectually, and socially. And that will be a holistic health that I think most people need to pursue. Because if you are healthy physically, but not healthy in other domains, you can still end up being unhealthy physically. And of course, the vice versa is true in any of the domains. So I think increasingly, we have to look at health as a holistic concept. So to do that, one of we are also exploring, can we look at other skill sets? For example, um, global and population health can be developed further. Currently, we have the medicine and society track, but we may grow it a little bit to become a global and population health track. So all students will have foundational knowledge in public health matters, preventive health. But I think we also want to grow in uh, knowledge like nutrition, maybe how to cook and eat well. Exercise is medicine, so how to exercise as a healthcare professional so you can encourage your patient to really exercise. And also look at poverty and other social determinants of health which sometimes are still not looked into. And so the ability to spot this kind of problems in our patient is actually a skill that is not easy. And so if we can cultivate this, it will be good. And the best way to cultivate this is not through the hospital posting, but to be embedded in the community and in the patient's home. And that's why along with these activities or this track, we will continue to encourage students to volunteer for the community service projects. Um, but at the same time, projects like longitudinal patient exposure will grow. For example, we have plans to make it more interprofessional. Now, even the pharmacy students is joining us and it will become compulsory probably next year. And not only they will maybe follow the patient for one year, but they will go beyond one year to the second year. 
so that not only they can be a learned friend, but in time to come, they can actually support the family as a bit more educated as a health professional. You know? So we, we want to, the students to continue to see how the various social determinants of health affect the person and the family, not just from the hospital setting, but more importantly, in the community and within the home. Another area we feel is that in the era of big data and analytics, there'll be lots of information that will be accumulated because electronically we can do that through the electronic medical records and increasingly this will be integrated with other databases. So I think if we can also have the knowledge of data analytics or health informatics, we can then work with the data scientists to harness the data and do predictive analytics, precision medicine, and a lot of other things in a much better way. And hopefully then we can do what is right for the patient correctly most of the time. And that links back to quality improvement, and that also links back to reduced wastage, and of course, better value-based healthcare. And so it, in a way, it's integrated. Of course, there are the more traditional tracks, and I think we'll continue. One other track that is interesting that we are going to pilot this year is what we call the BISI track. BISI, Behavioral and Implementation Science Track. So we also know that um, there's, lot of, there's quite a lot of behavioral science out there. What can be useful as nudges for people to do the right thing easily uh, because psychologically they are programmed to do so. And so if you can teach our students who are interested in this area to know what these nudges are and then look at the health interventions with the nudges in place and hopefully they can see the behavioral changes and lifestyle changes that help the patient ultimately. So in a way, they're all linked, whether it's global health, behavioral science, implementation science, or the analytics. And hopefully different students will have different skill sets and they can work together in the community to make a change. So in future, for example, our community health project may not be a cross-sectional project, but we want them to go into a community and look at one a cohort of patients, pay 100,000, and they do different in interventions, different analytics, different kind of nudges to show that some of these skill sets that they have learned can also be applied even in their undergraduate years. So hopefully when they, when they graduate, they do not think that specialization is the only route that will give them the impact to health outcome, but really even things like data science, working in the community, looking at behavioral nudges will be just as powerful, if not more powerful, than specialization. How about students in their clinical years already? So don't worry, it's never too late because we are also creating this um, knowledge into uh, courses for continuing education training. So even as an alumni, you can come back to the school to take certificate courses in data science, in health informatics, and also maybe in etc. Um, and hopefully we can also explore having some of these certificates stacked into degree courses. So we are working on that. And as you know, the government is now very supportive of continuing education training. And I think the concept of micro-credentialing, that means learning what you really need in your work and not necessarily an entire master's or PhD, is something rather att attractive now. And then learning, just applying what you have learned straight away and then deciding what to learn next and then build up as a skill set that is a composite of different kind of sciences and artistic kind of pursuit may allow a person to be a lot more creative and the solution to be a bit more powerful. So something I was wondering is, um, I'm hearing like a lot of new ideas, um, a lot of new things that the school is trying to come up with. And 
from what I understand about medicine is that it's a very tradition, hierarchical base um, field. And I was wondering, have you met with any resistance um, so far with coming up with these new ideas? I wouldn't call them resistance, but I think in change management, you always have to look at um, the stages. For example, one of the change uh, management approach is the Cotter's uh, model of change, where you first have to create a burning platform, and then you have to secondly um, gather those people who are like-minded to do something about it, and then along the way celebrate successes, etc., etc. So I think any of these changes. Um, and the burning platform is very clear because if you think about Singapore, we actually have um, a very long lifespan now of 85 years, but out of these 85 years, the last 10 years are living in disability. And so if we persist in, on this route, even if we live longer, number of years of disabled life may continue to grow longer. And so having long life with poor quality is actually not enviable, right? And to make things a bit more concerning is that our population uh, will not grow too much and in a way our healthcare expenditure cannot also grow. So one of the ways to really make sure that Singapore is still viable as a nation in the next 50 years is to ensure that even as the people live longer they are very healthy and they continue to contribute to their community, to their family and they are not so much dependent on healthcare because they have the prevention and the good care in place to prevent complications and disability does not set in. And if they can live to a ripe old age of 85 and not having to worry about recurrent admissions or having, or worse even, have to stay in a nursing home, then I think not only we can ensure that everyone is ha having a better life, a healthier life, but the healthcare costs may not continue to spiral out of control. And furthermore, the economic value of these people who are healthy contributing to the community may also help to negate the need for more uh, population growth. It sounds like it's important for a doctor to have kind of like a helicopter view of things um, from one patient to a community and to the entire Singapore, maybe even the entire world. Yes. Um, so something I was thinking about is how do you maintain that sense of size I guess because when you're a medical student or when you're a doctor you only see things in the clinic and things are very busy so how, how, do, you, how do you keep that part of you alive? I think the key is to really build relationships along the way because along the way you realize that when you have a patient with you and somehow they get better and not only that, you see the patient not only as an individual, but you see them as a family. And I think one of the reasons why I choose rheumatology is that I grow old with my patients. The lupus patients don't really get cured, so they see me for the rest of their life. The rheumatoid arthritis patient likewise. And so I literally see them um, growing up, having a family, having children, and growing old with me. And I've become very aware that just being healthy for the lupus condition is not enough. You, they need to be healthy in the holistic sense as an individual. And you also know that if the family wants to be healthy, the social conditioning, the government policy, the different aspects of society needs to be healthy as well. What I'm trying to say is that it is the sense of relationship that motivates us to work on nurturing things to become better. I to go back a bit more to the medical humanities actually. Mm. I think you mentioned a lot of things like courage, resistance, empathy, and building fields in Yonglulin about community. What do you think is like the physiology of how humanities leads to these things, like these broad-minded thinking or these values? 
I think having an open mind to link up things is something uh, important. Don't be narrow in your focus. Along the way, for example, actually I, I did a master's in um, theology as well. So I always try to see relevance in, say, the spiritual side of things, and then how it's linked to the emotional side and the physical side, and then looking not at me as an individual, but as a family, as a community. And they are all intertwined. And hopefully because once you know that so many things are connected, you cannot just deal with one thing and solve a problem. You really need to work together as a group and work on different things concurrently, um, but all aiming towards a general direction that is good for the community. And therefore, I think with relationships that is strong, there's that psychological safety, the chance of this happening becomes a lot better. And of course, when there's success, it's, then the reward will naturally come. And another example is um, from the realm of Tai Chi, because I also like to do Tai Chi. And one of the things that Tai Chi talks about is the flow of Qi, and the cultivation of the E. And to me, the flow of Qi is the flow of trust between human beings. And if you, if the, if you have that trust, you are more likely to con align the purpose. So I think um, as long as there's relationship, there's a chance of building trust, and therefore the chance of building alignment in purpose, and therefore a particular calling uh, that's shared by a group of people will become a reality one day. The dominant thinking in Singapore is X leads to Y. When you do something, it must lead to a change in something else. And I think this is part of the, the reason why there, there's resistance towards medical humanities, because there's no immediate output. It's not like they, um, at the, at, like you can snap your fingers and they're automatically more empathetic. Yeah. Um, and there's also very unclear um, outcomes, right? Like how, how do you really measure these kind of things? And, and I think as a student right now, I think a lot of the difficulty is you have all these different interests, but you feel like you need to give it up. So I, I was wondering, what do you have to say to, to people who say, oh, you're distracting medical students from clinical practice or their clinical skills are going to get more rusty? So maybe two, two uh, responses to that. The first one is the concept of um, X leads to Y, the Asian way versus the more Western way. The Asian way is a bit more circular. You know, when you do something, it may not always result in something, but something else happened, but that is just as important. Now, on the part of distracting medical students, and this is where I feel adaptive learning is important. Um, hopefully, either because you have good teachers or you have built insights into your students, or maybe in future with artificial intelligence, you can actually uh, create a different learning path for different students based on when they need to learn things and apply them at the appropriate time. So put simply is that those who are already coping well in their clinical skills and other medical knowledge and aptitude may have bandwidth to learn something extra. And another concept is that because of this eight-year cycle that I've talked about, it that doesn't mean that just because you're focusing on being a good doctor in the first 12 years or even 16 years of life means that you are forever just learning how to be a good doctor. Because there will come a point of time that you are good enough and you can start to learn other skill sets. And because I focus on the importance of linking things up, so even the new knowledge that you have acquired will always come back to help your patients if you bother to link them up. And so nothing is ever wasted. And never say that it's too late to learn something. 
Okay, thank you so much for all your insights, Prof Lau, and like your Tai Chi philosophy, uh, this change model, I've uh, all never heard before. One. Okay, so for people with short attention spans, what are three main takeaways that you would like us to all remember? Still the same three things that I started with. Find your sweet spots. That means what you can do easily and enjoy doing uh, and become successful usually. Second, find your calling. You know, think about not just um, the next two years, but in the long term, what do you really want to achieve in your life? Make sure you align all your learnings and all your um, choices with that calling in, gen- in the general direction. And finally, build relationships. Um, find the right people with the right um, vision and work with them so that that particular calling and vision will come uh, true. give a shout out to Erica Nyam, current fifth year medical student at NUS, for composing that beautiful music. It is titled Locked In and it was first performed at the Humanizing Healthcare Concert in December of 2019. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to know more, please follow us on Instagram at Third Spacing. And for more information about the podcast itself, check out our website at thirdspacing.wordpress.com.